we're innovating at the edge of the frontier of the new governance design of this is the new organization. This is the edge of technology. We should be enjoying ourselves. We should be having a lot of fun and we should be making a difference. That was Dr. Neek. No, not the kind of doctor that you would go to when the NDC baddies break your heart, but rather the kind of doctor with a PhD in physics. On this pod, we tried to go easy at first, but inevitably, like three minutes in, we go deep. As soon as Nick says that physics is a protocol layer of the universe, we fall into a black hole where we keep going back and forth between the core essence of humanity and society and the new frontiers of technology. With every topic, we keep peeling new layers of wisdom and knowledge as Nick keeps drawing from his experience teaching cryptography to working at a nuclear facility and more. Some of the key themes that really stood out to me include the value thesis of crypto, his unconventional path into near, and perhaps most importantly and topical at the moment, the work that he's doing on DAOs and governance. A final note, if you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to like and subscribe, leave a cheeky, glowing review, send us a tweet. Any small gesture really helps the podcast grow. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this wild, wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Nick. Bye. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, ABB. Today, it is an absolute honor to have with me, Dr. Nick. Nick has a PhD in physics, learning theorist, governance designer, CEO, building emerging technology at factory labs, and more. Welcome, Nick. Welcome, mate. Thank you very much for having me on AVB. Was it an accurate description? I usually go by the Twitter one, but I know that people can be a little bit playful on that one. Yeah, that's my bio. It's pretty real. <laughs> it's pretty spawn. Amazing. PhD in physics, that's pretty intense. It was, yeah. It's good. Feels like a lifetime ago now, but yeah, I did did ten years of physics towards the start of my career. Was physics yeah, and... as cool back in the day? Because I know that it's getting onto the mainstream now with time traveling and nuclear, and it just seems to be more relevant in more fields. But I don't know what got you into it back in the day. It was deeply uncool when I did it. It was actually. Yeah, I, school was like pretty tough for me. I found it incredibly boring. So my grades weren't that amazing. So the only reason why I stayed in academia was because no one wanted to do physics when I wanted to do it. There was, it was undersubscribed, um, but I ended up getting into a really good physics course. Um, so yeah, it was deeply uncool. Um, I think it was like the big bang theory. Do you remember that TV show that sort of made it trendy and cool again? And that sort of changed it all around, which is good we need physicists but yeah it's a bit more cool now that's amazing and it is very useful despite the coolness factor or lack thereof yeah it's just very useful yeah it's pretty much how the universe works i remember when i was in high school my physics teacher used to say this is like high school physics but is everything is physics everything that you look at there's like physics there but then the chemistry teacher would say the exact same thing is everything is chemistry. <laughs> everything you look at, there's like chemistry there. And I was like, okay, I see your points. I think you may be slightly biased, but yeah, there's just so many things that we often overlook. Yeah. Physics is like the, the protocol layer of the universe. <laughs> that's when you get to the bottom, that's where it is. 
do you find that with that acquired knowledge, let's call it deep expertise, do you sometimes look at everyday's things through those like physics lenses? Yeah, always. It's when you spend long enough studying physics, you do absolutely pass everything through that lens. I, I, I view the world as a kind of, from a scientific perspective, but yeah, I have to say I, a bit less than I used to in the sense that like physicists STEM, hard STEM background, people tend to look with a kind of very hard reductionist view of the world. Yeah. So physicists, yeah, tend to be quite reductionist in their worldview. So I, they just have this logical positive view, positivist view of the world, where if you can't measure it, it doesn't matter. And I spent after leaving physics about 10 years, moving through social sciences and education governance theory and things like that, which made me again, change my worldview to be a little bit more open understanding of the social layer of the world. It is interesting because I feel like the internet is forcing us to all collide. Something that I've been thinking about recently is that if you can't measure it and it's more superstitious or like religion or conspiracy or something, but even though you can't measure it, there's a surprising overlap with things. For instance, I'm looking at religion, like the origins of the world in the Bible, and then looking at simulation theory and I'm like, yeah, I think that the creator of the simulation is the God. And then you start to realize that we have a very strong connection that seems to be human in nature, but that we're just projecting it or decoding it through completely different means. And you yeah. may be able to reconcile both. Maybe God created the technology or maybe the technology was the origins, but we didn't know how to explain it 2000 years ago. So we just invented this other thing to make it digestible for people. But yeah, it's, it's a good ayahuasca session for sure. Yeah, we're getting deep already. Yeah, I think the kind of Big Bang thing is like a good example of how there is things that will be fundamentally inexplained, right? There's whole, what I come to realize is there's going to always going to be things you just can't measure that are intangible. The way I actually rationalize these things is through complexity science, actually, which kind of says there's emergent things that you can't see coming, they're unpredictable. Even if you had a computer that knew all the state of the universe, you still might not be able to figure out where it all came from. And yeah, you mentioned the internet's made us all connect together more, but that's made the world more complex things. We live in a complex system. Humans bring the complexities. One of the reasons why I love DAOs so much is that, yeah, when, as soon as you add humans into the mix, it gets very un un unpredictable and messy. And that's when you start to need governance and stuff. And, and you can't always me measure what's going on, you're working in the unmeasurable. So yeah, I, I find that stuff really fascinating, but yeah, like on the, on the sort of philosophical side, it's going to be some hybrid of all of these ideas is rather where the truth is going to be. I think. Very interesting that you're the second guest in a row that in a completely unplanned way, bring up complexity science, almost to the point where I actually looked it up. I did a little bit of research and I signed up for complexity science through Coursera. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's offered by a professor at the University of Technology in Singapore, I think NTU, National Technology University or something. And yeah, I was going through the course and because I had always been interesting, interested in complex adaptive systems mm -hmm. and how everything is combined from my background in the law. My university had a double degree program, so you could do two degrees at once. That was a response to what we call, what they call the Melbourne model, which is the other university where you have to do 
a degree first, and then you do law, which is American model. Yep. And uh, 93% of lawyers in Australia oh, at this main university do double degrees. Some people think it's a waste of time and money, but when you look at how complex society is, you realize that the legal training is like the thinking layer. It gives mm-hmm. you a framework for assessing information, but then you have the problem of what subject matter expertise do you have? Yes. You know, and engineering law, commerce law, biotech law, like you need to have the source of the information coming in. You also need to be able to digest and, and, and understand. Yeah, uh, complex adaptive systems are fascinating because I found out really quickly that very few people had that multidisciplinary training where you get both your, say, whatever, science depth background and the legal background to understand how it interacts with other things. And yeah, I think that lawyers are disliked because of the way that they build and also misunderstood because they tend to be very nuanced. And mm-hmm. I guess that they can see the multiple sides of the coin. So yeah, complex adaptive systems is fascinating because you're always trying to consider or predict something that, as you say, like you may not be able to measure or you may not be able to measure until it happens, at which point it's too late. Like your job is to avoid risk. So yes. yeah, I think that from very different angles, we very much meet in these trying to predict or shape the future for the better, perhaps. Absolutely. And yeah, delighted to hear you getting it. Whenever I hear someone's discovering complexity science, I think the world would be a better place if more people understood complexity thinking is sometimes called where people can look at the world with a more nuanced point of view and understand unpredictability and abstractions and the limits of them. I think the world's be a better place. And the thing you mentioned lawyers and the, the misunderstanding, I see that they speak a different language and the way in which lawyers communicate essentially to each other essentially alienates a group of people. So I think these worlds are mixing with code now. And I think certainly with AI systems and things like that, I think a lot of these things are going to converge and start to build a new language, more natural language instructions. Like lawyers are like the coders of the real world. I've heard someone say, which I really liked. So yeah, I think everything's going to get a lot more understandable. That's a really good way to put it, but I would say the other way around. I think that the people that were disgruntled or maybe didn't fully understand the lawyer's world and that traditional system world figured out a way to code a new one. The problem is that in this new world that we've coded, we're also lacking the complexity to understand why were things done a certain Mm -hmm. way to begin with. Like the, the example that I always give people, and I don't know how old you are, I don't want to ask, you can share if you want, but I've seen photos of my dad when he studied in Canada back in the day, in the 70s. Yeah. He was the craziest, funniest hippie, long hair, sitting on top of a car, smoking, anti-war protest. And when you look at that generation, it was a generational thing. It was a very strong sentiment. And people don't realize that those same people are the boomers of today that are most mm-hmm. conservative. And what I try to explain to people is that if you talk to them for long enough, you can see that it is not a resistance to change. It is a resistance to repeating the same mistakes of the past, which is why the conversation is so nuanced. We have mm-hmm. to understand what was tried before, why was it tried, and where did it fail? Just looking at those three things, and if you prove to me that you can actually understand them, maybe we can come up with a better model. I'm sure that there can be a better model, 
but I continue seeing a very reductionist or very simplistic view of the world. Selfish in some ways, short-term in others, but yeah. I don't know if you yeah. identify with any of that distribution, but... No, yeah, I'm generally a bit on the older end of the uh, crypto crowd. I was, it's weird. I moved from being one of the youngest, I was a senior academic for a while. I was one of the youngest associate deans in the country. So very much on the youngest side and then coming to crypto immediately moving to the oldest side. But still, it's not far enough away that I don't get the culture and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, we are looking for a new model, I think is ex exactly the right phrase for it, actually. Something that wraps in all the old models, but puts a new frame on the world. Doesn't keeps the respect for what has happened, but moves forward in a productive way and find, finds a new way of synthesizing what, what's been in the past. I generally find the whole project of what we're working on here with blockchains as the site at where that new model is going to, going to emerge. I think that's a very, it's a very subtle warm up, but introduction to the value thesis that you shared on Twitter recently. I liked it because it captures both a point in time, like where we may be now. And yeah, there's some analysis there as to what we may be trying to achieve or should, could be, what we may be doing wrong. So yeah, maybe I'll, I'll let you try to explain it. Pretend like I haven't read it on Twitter, but it's a value thesis. So yeah, as a bit of background, I was reading a book called Why, and it's about a kind of philosophical sort of text on where there's a purpose to the universe is, did God do it all or is there no God and it's completely nihilistic and pointless. And he tries to rationalize a kind of non-theistic look at the universe. And just as a kind of tool in that book, he separates out two ideas of value, one with value with a small V which was just the numbers, constants, physics constants that sort of decide what the strong nuclear force, one of these cosmological constant, gravitational constant, these kind of numbers that make up the fabric of the universe. Value the values into an equation. It's just a yes, digit. Just digits, just a number. In fact, these kind of fixed numbers that if they were even slightly different, the universe perhaps wouldn't have even formed at all. Or, and, and there's certainly only a tiny little window of how these numbers can be set where life could exist, where we could exist. It's 10 to the 200 or 300, the chances of this happening by chance. That's scary when you put it that way. Yeah, it's called uh, the fine tuning, universe fine tuning. And yeah, all of these numbers just so happen to be the only way that they can be. And you can rationalize this by thinking there's many universes and most of them fail and all this kind of stuff. But he makes the argument that the reason why we're in this one is because it can have value. So there's some kind of selection, calls it a value selection hypothesis, that we're in this universe. It's incredibly unlikely that we'd be, that this kind of range exists and we're in it. So maybe there's a force to the universe that is there to create value. It selects for value and he calls that value, big V value, capital V on value. And I just picked this idea up and used it as a kind of lens to look at what we're doing in crypto at the moment. And. Yeah, we've got a rather, we're in this kind of nihilistic phase where everything's meme coins and just about number go up, not much else. And the, I was lamenting the loss of the real sort of vitality there was in the industry when I first came to it and, and about properly in about 2016, 17, and it was an anarchist and a 
and had a real sort of let's change the world sort of idea to it. And I feel like we got a bit lost and we've just made everything about the small V value. All we're doing is chasing these numbers around on a screen. And in, in, in fact, we're selecting for just that, right? We're actually in crypto, we have the inverse value selection where the closer to meme coins with hats or whatever, the better, the more the market likes it, the more it's, and we even get sort of VCs writing theses around why pointless meme coins are actually great and all these sort of things. So yeah, I just started just to look at what is the point of all this? We've just come out of a bear market. It's been tough for everyone. What's the point? What, what are we doing all this for? And that was largely where I was taking it. I feel like this is wildly inappropriate after you show your thesis based on a book, which is no doubt much more researched and thought out probably, but I can't help but going back to that intelligent design slash simulation origins. Like for instance, it's like me saying there are a hundred thousand characters, unlimited number of characters in the world. What are the chances that the code for your application just happened to me? If you change a handful of characters, the code would not run. And it's, yeah, obviously, because somebody wrote that code to do something, it, it, it's function centric. And I think that when you put it that way, you can see that most things that we create have a purpose and ideally they create mm -hmm. value to the user. We can look at value capture from a business model, but there is a deliberate reason why something you know, is done a certain way. So yeah, I, I wonder about the universe and almost like that meta playground. We got the right set of conditions with the resources, with whatever, and then it's go and discover what you can do. But there's still like a purpose, like improvement or something. And I guess that, that probably ties with the cyberpunk. I would love if you could expand on that because that's roughly when I came in as well. Like I discovered Bitcoin in 2013. I read a book mm -hmm. and research, but it wasn't until I graduated uni in 2017 that I went into crypto full-time. And that's not only what I resonated with, but that is still how I would identify myself. I am on the cyberpunk route, build, contributing mm -hmm. towards the core infrastructure to build something else. How would you describe yes. the movement? What are their values? What draw you to it? Because I know that we probably have very different backgrounds. I believe you live in the UK. Yeah, I, I, I live in the UK. I've always lived here. Um, yeah, so yeah, the cypherpunk aspect of it. I came to studying governance. I worry about things going wrong at a systemic level. So I worry about what happens when governments collapse and what happens when things go deeply wrong and what happens when crises hit? So we saw one with the pandemic. All of a sudden, governments can, if they want, completely remove all your freedoms overnight. And all of a sudden, you can be criminalized for leaving your house, right? And I worried about this stuff before that happened, and now I worry about it even more. <laughs> and, and the cypherpunks were worrying about this long before I was. And the cypherpunks saw that cryptography and the ability for people to be able to communicate with each other without surveillance was like a safety net for civilization away from things going super wrong, from power getting out of hand. And, and yeah, the people like Philip Zimmerman, who, who invented PGP, which now is the basis for all blockchain technologies, saw these tools as a kind of important thing for civilization. 
And what I saw blockchains as is a way to take that a step further and move it into more social layer coordination systems. So instead of just being able to communicate to one another peer to peer privately, we've now got these tools to be able to organize outside of as an alternative system to one that exists today. So I see a lot of what we're building here is a redundancy system for if everything goes wrong in the real world. And it's not exactly looking too stable at, at the moment, to say the least. I, I thought not only is this a, a new industry that is going to create a lot of new tools and a new frontier of technology. So I've always been very excited about emerging technologies and where, where the future is going and technology is what drives civilization always has done. So I always wanted to be at the frontier of one of, uh, of where technology is going. And I just felt like this is a value system that I could get behind. This is about building important architecture that will allow civilization to flourish, whatever happens in any centralized systems. Pretty deep. That's things that most people don't want to think on a daily basis. And to be honest, I guess that most people shouldn't. That's the whole point. I always tell people that a good government is a world that you never hear about. They just mm -hmm. do their job. Things just work. Not invasive, not corrupt, just easy does it. It's similar as the way that we don't think how our clothes are made. Well, perhaps we should. Some people have some views on that. Yeah. But yeah, that makes me wonder, like, how many people should be thinking about this? And because the way that I see it, and, and I, through some of your writing, we're very much aligned. The end user doesn't give a shit, but we have to understand that we cannot build new sustainable, resilient models if it's four of us in it. So we have the challenge of building something for the masses, but the masses don't give a fuck. And I think that the yeah. core point that you're driving through your thesis which has a little bit of a bearish tone, but there's also excitement there. We'll get to the near part in a minute. I think that the core point that you're driving is if you want to be in the car where we're driving towards this outcome, you have to be aligned with the outcome. Like we cannot be in crypto building the alternative if crypto has become a circus of meme coins. The meme coins are not the solution. Where are the people with the vision? Like where did the people with the values mm -hmm. go? Are we aligned? Are the meme coins being detrimental to the core value proposition? How many governments have we alienated? How many big deals have we alienated? How much, which te new technologies are being written off because they don't get as much visibility or, or a chance as the more prominent uh, memes or scams? Yeah, I'd say in the piece, I don't have a problem with meme coins at all, actually. I personally now find them a bit boring. And like when I first got to crypto, I thought, God, this is hilarious. This is fun. This people are just like, this is what happens when you democratize the markets. People trade memes around. And I found that actually really energizing. But the kind of problem is it's like the I think the phrase I use is the Inu layer never dies, right? This is all this is the base layer of the industry, which is there's always going to be meme coins. There's the first app ever created in crypto was Satoshi Dice. And that was a gambling game. That like gambling, speculation, it's just part, it's, the, it's very much actually close to the base layer of the economics in this industry because it's democratized that instead of central banks and institutional structures being the base layer, it's gamblers here because it's everyone just speculating on, on pointless meme coins. The, what I think though, and I, I think, so I don't see any problem with it. I, and 
I, I think it's pointless to, to have a problem with it, to be honest, because it's fairly inevitable. They're always going to be there. I don't have a problem and... with them either. I actually just made a video promoting uh, some main code competition. Damn, I think it's great fun. It's a way to onboard average users. I guess that yeah. the nuance is we all need to understand the role that we play and which stage we're in. Should core protocol developers be distracted or chasing these trends? It's, you know, you're putting the cart ahead of the, the horse. Yeah. It'd be I like the, asking the engineers writing the algorithm for TikTok to also be dancing on the application to be popular. It's not two different people. It, we build a technology that enables these trends to occur. I do find it fascinating how people take it and run with them, but we have to understand that's not the North Star. It's not. And I think this is it. It's, it's finding out what's the... It's, if we end up with just that, then it's a kind of very market nihilism sort of phrase of things where, you know, that's all right, we've just landed on the idea that there's not much point to all this. Let's just make it a kind of decentralized casino. And actually, I think it's got so much more potential to be actually societally transformative. And I think we just need to start more ready looking for that. A big problem with the meme coin things is a lot of them are rug pulls. If they were fair meme coins, I have zero problem with them at all. I found some research last year that 99.7% of tokens launched on Uniswap were rug pulls. That's a terrible statistic. And that's what most of these meme coins are, right? So I think for one, we need to figure out, we, we've not concentrated enough on the trust models to make the token models that we've got, the economics that is at the base layer, robust enough. We, we should be able to, we should be by now at the point where we can eliminate a huge amount of the rug pulls and certainly some of the stuff that we've been working on is along that lines and i think once we get but, that foundation nailed we can move beyond it i know that this is a tough argument because there's never one way to do it but what do you think of the people that say that in some ways certainly in the west we've been too sheltered and the reason why the government has continued to expand is because they want to protect us from everything possibly available, whether it exists or not. And that crypto, it's like a very savage version to the mean where people are finding out in a unprotected way, economics, supply, demand, inflation, they're mm -hmm. finding out whether they should be engaging with things that are purposely designed. Is this code designed to achieve a purpose? Or is a code, and by the way, people are being told explicitly, it's a meme coin. The code is designed to not do anything and you still buy it. Yep. If you lose your money, honestly, you wanted to lose your money. Is there any value to that argument? Yeah. Like, where do we step in to say what's acceptable and not acceptable? Yeah, I think it's a really good thing to lens in on a little bit. It's all about risk. And I think we've got actually a fundamental possibility with the notion of risk. And, and risk is used to manipulate people's thinking. And I think the, it's where the state comes in as the Leviathan in which to protect us from risk. So there's things that have lots of real risk. We've got regulations to stop people putting lead in food and to levels of contamination that are not acceptable. And without them, people would still be dying uh, 20 years younger than they do now. So there's levels of protection from state regulation that's sensible, but they risk. So risk actually can be quantified. And it's typically, if you do, I did a bit of nuclear safety work in the past and in, in nuclear physics, and I've got a lot of friends in that industry. 
And they calculate things by like the chance of death. So what is the chance that this kills you? And you can actually calculate risk down to what they call micromorts, which is like one, one in a million chance of death. And you rack up several of these every day just by walking on the street and going outside. And that's why we have speed limits. If there was no speed limits on roads, then you're adding six more micromorts of, of danger to your life every day. But the problem is we, we conflate financial risk with the risk of death. There are actually different classes of risk. And people, as far as I'm concerned, as long as we should, people should be able to come and gamble on meme coins if they want, as far as I'm concerned. There's no risk of death unless people ape their entire life savings as long as their rent and everything into them. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do in the UK now. We're trying to stop people from just doing that, trying to bring it into closer to gambling laws where you're not allowed to put your entire house in it. The problem is, is that this is incongruent with the technology itself, which is permissionless. There's no amount of regulations that will stop someone aping their life savings into cat with hat token if they, if you, you just can't stop them. There's no way to, to do that. So I think we've got to understand what risk is about and understand what can be done technologically, because I think you can yeah. just adopt standards in the space that make it better. This is hologram theory. It's a whole new rabbit hole. We don't have to go through that. But I sometimes like to think of humans as a computer. You've got your own code and it's fascinating to try to predict input output. There is something about some things that hack the individual. For instance, why aren't we passing laws for people to not buy their life savings? worth of, I don't know, Doritos at Tesco. Because people, this is a good question, but I think that we have an answer. No one has, and probably no one will. There's just nothing about Doritos that you would ape in your life savings. Yeah. I'm sure if it's the best analogy, but you can see how there's something about the gambling and dopamine and people being more. Yeah. I think this is, it has to be a line because I think would, and this is what one of these things that worries me about where the direction of travel might be. We might get to the point where we say, okay, too much TikTok is bad for you. And then we start legislating control of people's phones so they can only use TikTok for two hours a day or something like that. There's got to be a line somewhere. And increasingly, with the like, technologies are uncontrollable. There's AI models out there now that you can't ever take back. There's anyone can launch a meme coin in 25 seconds. So I think what we're at is like a fundamentally and it's like an epistemological challenge of the nature of control and the state and where the, the line of freedom and autonomy is. And one of the very reasons why I'm interested in DAOs as a kind of negotiation of that. Yeah, because it comes down to the complex adaptive systems. The question that I always put to people, and we can also touch on the NDC if you want. The question is, is the system resilient? Can it withstand mm -hmm. attacks, whether intended or unintended, and can it heal? and recover. And if you look at something like the freedom for people to engage, I would argue, and this is where the libertarian in me comes in, some of these systems have self-healing mechanisms. Like for instance, inscriptions. On near, we saw that inscriptions start bringing the network down. Their response is not asking for a government regulate how many inscriptions you can mint or like very blunt, centrally uh, mandated solutions, restrictions. 
We've seen pragmatic responses around contract-specific fee markets yep. and trying to scale in different ways. RPCs as well, we're moving from having a three public RPC, which you have the tragedy of the commons, one project overloading, et cetera, moving to a freemium model. So you can be like, hey, everyone can use the RPC, but if you have a very heavy load event, you also have to pay for your weight. So there's mechanisms like that. I even think of it, what the things such as Anyone can launch a meme coin, anyone can buy a meme coin. But when you look at lending markets, we don't list meme coins as collaterals because you can see how one person's financial decisions, and they may be responsible, they may lose their money, we compartmentalize it. You cannot I guess, expand your losses or expand the risk to other people. And I think that's what's beautiful. If you think about it in the most rural ways, DeFi is much safer than traditional finance. Everything is over collateralized and everything is visibly public. Traditional finance did good fucking luck finding out what was your mortgage debt, how much the yeah. bank has in reserve, trying to get your net worth in, in cash dollars. That doesn't exist. That boat sailed bigger. Yeah. I think it will be. At the moment, we're in this kind of nascent stage where there's a huge amount of technical risk and there's there's been enough smart contract hacks to for us to credibly say, you know, it, it's not quite as safe as putting your money in the bank at the moment. But I think what you alluded to there with the changes near is made around inscriptions is you've got a healing system. You've got a system that immediately you've got innovative approaches to addressing a real problem and crypto systems that it's a hyper competitive market. If there's an immediate problem, there's teams running at it straight away there to, to fix that because there's an incentive to do so. But also we've got the way, the ability to bring in marquee crypto economics to solve these things like dynamic localized fee markets is a beautiful, elegant solution to these things. I believe it's what's stopped the Solana halting problem as well. So I think it, like, this is a great example of how these things heal. And just like in the DeFi space as well, they're also, they're open systems. So. When we find a bug that's present in across several projects, they're either all going to get exploited and leave the game, but that knowledge makes it, or, or they fix their code and they evolve so that it's a Darwinian system in a say, and, and like over time we'll end up with primitives that are completely battle hardened and, and will be more, we get all the open transparency and, and value of the, of that, those technologies and we've minimize the technical risk because just through evolutionary design, essentially. Last thing I'll say on this point, there is so many things we want to cover. Yeah. What I find the most ironic is when we look at a technology and when criticizing it, we realize that the thing, the entity at fault all along was us. I'll give mm -hmm. you an example. In this self-healing mechanism, the West is finding out that we pushed a positive, a well-intended narrative that is causing us harm, the heuristics and the ability to very quickly process a ton of inputs and make a judgment call. We've known that down. Now we call it discrimination. We call it whatever. We've tried to build almost like hard-coded stereotypes that we're realizing in the wild actually. Maybe I should take a step back and turn back on my hyper-awareness of everything around me. And if something looks shitty, it may be shitty. 
and I have the right to make the call because I am the one at risk. If I see some anon developers from a certain region with a certain pattern of behavior, it is not racist to say they're probably going to scam me. It would be wise to say, hey, maybe it just doesn't meet my threshold for security. And it would be the same the other way around. If I see a group of developers that have a long history of successful projects that are known in the community, that you can communicate with them openly, you can look at many variables. But that's when you realize this is not a crypto problem. This is a people shut off their critical thinking and the red flags, we just wave at them back and we were trying to reactivate. And that's why, I mean, everything, it becomes a meme eventually, but I like the, the sovereign individual movement. And it's like, yeah, you can take a lot more sovereignty or, or ownership over your actions and structure your life in a certain way. Yeah, that's the layer of the smart contracts that I find the most interesting is it interacts with humans and we're constantly, it's like a pendulum where we go back and forth. Yes, the socio-technical systems. So they're kind of hybrid of humans and code. That's what I find most exciting about blockchains. Without humans putting the inputs in, they're just empty ledgers. Right. And eventually AI agents will come in and that, that sort of stuff. But I think you made well, a heavy point one. about, uh, yeah, it's going it, to, it'll dehumanize more in the future. And like I say, we'll get the pendulum swing. But I think you made a really interesting point about the information inputs. The, one of the beautiful things about the public blockchains is that we see everything. And that information is universally open to everyone who can check the ledger. You can't hide information. If it doesn't lead to a state execution, doesn't lead to state change, then it doesn't matter. And so all the meaningful information is there and, and present for everyone to see. And like I say, we are in society closing down our signal. And when you start to lose information out of the system, that's when you start to make bad decisions because you're judging only on what everyone can see or what is available for decision-making. So yeah, keeping high signal, I do think like the, these systems have a place in, in putting free and open discourse back up, back, back on the map. Indeed. I'm curious, how did you and David Weinstein meet? We met from an introduction of a couple of friends who were interested in setting up a, a venture DAO. And we were talking DAOs and I was talking about various things like emergence and stuff. And they said, oh, you should speak to David. And yeah, they introduced me to David. That's maybe September-ish last year. And he introduced me to Nier, as I wrote about in that piece. He invited, he said, you should come to NearCon. And yeah, that's when I went down the rabbit hole, let's say. We'll touch on the NearCon thing. I've always been on the community side. I've always been a, a man wearing many hats, never a dog with a hat, but, and I have been skeptical. The use of my critical thinking and my stereotypes. Sometimes I'm skeptical of the professionals or the employees. Because let's be honest, mm -hmm. when you're a professional, implied in the name is you come in and you do your job to the highest standard in your field. It doesn't really matter who hires you kind of thing. I'm always happy when I meet people that they're not just professionals within your ecosystem carrying out a specific task to the highest standard mm. possible, but that there is something within here that makes it click for them. And not only are they professionals, but they also embody those values. And historically, we have struggled a bit to communicate those and perhaps to attract mm -hmm. the right people. There's been a lot of changes since NeuroCon and perhaps we're getting closer to that 
core of what NIR stands for. But before we jump in NIR, you are the DAO guy. Is <laughs> factory DAO, how does it come to be? I want to unpack what are something that you've learned through it, maybe things that you were not expecting. What What is factory DAO? That is it. It's quite a long story. I would say it's... I've been obsessed on decentralized organizations for quite some time from before DAOs. I built a sort of decentralized organization about 2012, 13 inside a university as a way to get people to self-organize around problem solving inside the university. And the DAO happened a few years later in 2016. And when that blew up, that's what brought crypto back into my DAO. The DAO, the, the original ill-fated, disastrous DAO. For the young period. people, <laughs> for the young people in the audience, but also what I also find fascinating is that as time goes on, different people remember it differently. Yeah. <laughs> so how would you describe the original purpose or the vision? Because it was quite a phenomenon back in the day. Yeah. So the, the original DAO was, it was like a decentralized fund. It was the idea that the original sort of idea Dan Larimer, who was making bit shares at the time, went on to make EOS. First proposed something called the Decentralized Autonomous Corporation. And then Vitalik sort of that out into an idea he called the DAO in the Ethereum white paper as a kind of mechanism for people to socialize transactions. Essentially, we can have a way that we can pool money together and decide how to spend it. And the original DAO idea was very much that. It was, we all put our money into a pot we get some tokens in return and actually our team in that case would present investment ideas or ways in which to spend that money to the token holders and they would vote on, on whether to, to invest in it or not. The, the DAO, as it was called, were essentially got hacked. There was a mechanism in it that if you didn't like a proposal, you could withdraw your tokens, your money from the DAO in exchange for your tokens. Um, and there was a re-entrancy bug in it, which allowed you to keep calling that function and just keep taking all the money out of the treasury. It was classic smart contract bug. This was a huge disaster and led to Ethereum forking, rolling back the chain and, and forking. And that news story is what made it into my circles at the time. I, I was teaching cryptography before this and got to Bitcoin early on, but Ethereum was a total blind spot to me. I, no, I was a Bitcoiner for a few years prior to this, but I'd been concentrating on education and other things for a few years. But yeah, the DAO, there was news articles that make it into my sort of tech feed at the time. And then at the time I was working on a decentralized organization and thought, wow, this, we can actually do this on the internet. We can take massive hyperscale decentralized self-organizing systems onto the internet and it's going to change the world. And yeah, that's, that led to a complete obsession on this idea. And I've been down that tunnel for a long time. And yeah, I, since then I was trying to break out of academia and get into crypto for years. And then just before in 2020, we did going, Just before we keep going, what would you say fuels that obsession? What do you see in the DAOs? What potential is in your mind that may not be obvious for people elsewhere? This changes a lot, and I answer this differently quite a lot of the time, depending on where my head's at the time. I think it's one of those alternate systems to there's the centralized way of doing things, the decentralized way of doing things. So I've experienced working in a decentralized organization and seen 
the, the kind of new problem solving that can happen. So what I'm excited about is creating organizational spaces or, or just simply digital spaces where people can self-organize and solve problems that we couldn't solve before. Purely around this idea of collective intelligence, I think we'll build new kinds of organizations that are better places to be part of that will do things that we couldn't do before, solve problems that we couldn't solve before. I think that we're very much aligned is just that sometimes it's hard to hit the nail. Like, why couldn't we do this before? What was it around like the decision-making, the coordination, the, the enabling of trust around people mm -hmm. that may have been spread across different jurisdictions, different legal systems, different currencies. There's no legal recourse. Because that's to me what made the DAO so exciting as a concept. It's very similar to many DAOs that we have now. But when you put it in that timeline, it was so early that not only we had an ecosystem that everyone could subscribe to, like value base, but the DAO was the first vehicle that enabled all those early visionaries to pull money together, even though there were a bunch of psychos around the world, and decide on which projects to invest to keep growing the ecosystem. Like mm -hmm. it was extremely empowering to yes. be able to do that. There's just no other vehicle to do that. You create a company, somebody owns it, and how do you speak mm -hmm. equity? And then there's a board, and who's at the board? Look at OpenAI, disaster. There's just yep. so many issues. So the last thing I want to ask is the DAO also created a beautiful philosophical dilemma very early on, which is code is law. But what happens when the code has a bug, which creates an unintended consequence? When Ethereum forks, Ethereum Classic is actually the real Ethereum. The Ethereum we know of today is actually the, that secondary layer that splinters off when they fork, they basically reversed the transactions to before the hack. So they basically yep. put everyone in the place where they would have been if the hack had never happened. I've heard some interesting arguments such as the Ethereum hacker would have had so much ETH that would have controlled the network. They were already thinking many years in advance to the proof of stake model. Complex adaptive systems, they were aware of these things. But the Ethereum classic guys were definitely more on that libertarian side. And they said, oh, yep. code is law. If you write a bug in your code and you suffer losses, bugs to be you. Which camp were you on back in the day? I would say I was on the governance side of things and still am. I think I, the code of law, code is law. And I'm, I'm much bit more code is law now, actually. Again, it's about this threshold of tolerance. We actually do treat code as law on Ethereum ever since, really, we don't wind back the chain every time someone gets hacked. And I, I think the line is it was existential. So if that Ethereum got lost to the hacker, the only aggrieved person really on that reorg was the hacker. Everyone else essentially got made whole again and Ethereum became the canonical chain. So although Ethereum classics kept the, the true immutable chain. The canonical chain was agreed on by participants across the network to be the canonical Ethereum. And it would have been over but at the time, Ethereum probably wouldn't be around today if they hadn't done it. So I think it has to be that existential where you take an extreme view. So it is, it was an extreme move to, to breach that immutability and we've never done it since. And, and I think the recent 
issue around geth and if there was a bug in geth right now on ethereum something like a third of ethereum like in circulation would be slashed and every stake like 68 70% of stakers would lose their money It'd be an absolute catastrophe so this question's coming back again would we rewind the chain again and ultimately this led me to believe that alter you need governance systems right there's i don't think we'll get away with vitalik and team in the ethereum foundation deciding to roll the ch chain back again those days are gone it would i think a decentralized system could make those kind of judgments but in the same way that ethereum had truth of word i had miners i could my mother mm -hmm. was in venezuela and proof of work and a roadmap and will grow into something better over time hopefully yeah I feel like governance is the same. Like we started with the most basic blunt governance mechanism. You can fork the chain. You don't like it. Yeah. Spin out on your chain and you can literally keep transacting it on a parallel universe. Never yes. in life we would be able to do that. You couldn't just fork the UK and there's a version in the EU and a version out of the EU. Like you're either in mm -hmm. or out. Like forking, it's crazy. So having the ability to fork is mind-blowing to me. Obviously, yep. you can do it at a particle level, but you can do it at a much smaller level. There may be a DEX. You don't like the DEX inflation. Create a new one with a new token. Reduce yep. the fees. You don't like they don't have night mode. For whatever reason, forking is an incredible power. And the other two components would be where do the miners or the validators go? So are you able to secure the new chain? Where do the core contributors go? Will the new chain still have support and keep developing? which is actually the Ethereum hat or the core developers went on to Ethereum. The third one is, where do the users go? I guess that users over time should also have choice and be able to vote with their feet. And that should be a dynamic system. Should miners and stakers consider leaving, knowing that they're going to be going into a ghost chain? The other way around, would a user go to a chain that it's not probably secure? Well, that all makes sense on paper. I think that you and I both know that it is a fucking disaster. We cannot successfully a dispute by threatening a fork. And by the way, I have heard, let the world know there are people thinking of forking near. And a fork should be like the absolute last resort. Yes. It's not a minor task. So then the question is, how can we decide or settle disputes before we resort to the raw technical? Yes. These are the Pitch fundamental forks. blockchain governance questions. Yeah, I think the, yeah, forks, pitchforks before forks or avoid the pitchfork. I think, yeah, so the mechanism of, yeah, base layer forking is a brand new concept in governance. I think it, it cements blockchain governance as its own branch of governance theory. It's the base layer of it, but it is a last resource. And as, as you can, if you look back through the kind of fork history of Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV still exist, but they're mostly just dead zombie chains, right? There's normally only one chain wins and it genuinely is a do or die situation. It's very unlikely that you get these kind of real genuine forks that coexist and play out their ultra realities. So what you want is systems that mitigate against that. So for me, it, it comes down to social consensus. You, what are the issues? Diagnosing exactly what is the consensus issue that's leading to the chain split. And 
essentially trying to find a way to reach a, an agreement that mitigates against that. For one, you can just save yourself the effort of conducting a whole fork. I think, for example, if there was a near fork where it's, if there's stable coins on there, the same on Ethereum now, they actually, it's USDC and Tether that would decide what the canonical Ethereum is at the moment. And where is the collateral? This proof of stake systems are a bit easier to fork. The stablecoin one, just really briefly, it's interesting because I think that everyone can see it, but I would imagine that the stablecoin issuers figured out pretty quickly that them issuing, say, on Ethereum mostly, and them having billions of dollars bridged over to other networks, the risk is too high. Yeah. I normally think about it from the user point of view, but for them, say, for instance, there's a billion dollars that goes to Avalanche or Harmony and the bridge bucks up, you, you can't get the billion dollars back. Mm-hmm. How can you redeem the money? I guess that for them, it's not as much of an issue because they keep the USD, but that's why yeah. we're seeing them issue stable coins natively on each blockchain. But yes. yeah, that doesn't solve the forking to issue com- because you can't just double the amount of dollars in circulation. So it doesn't. Yeah. When there's real world assets on a blockchain that makes the fork different, different the fork separation completely different, it, whatever new fork there is would essentially be starting from scratch and all of the usdt on there would essentially not be real usdt i think we will see some kind of grand fork happen in the at some point in the future i think i could imagine bitcoin forking around the ordinals piece i think there'll there'll be a original bitcoin and and a bitcoin that's happy to have ordinals and tokens and all these other things built on top of it I wouldn't be surprised if we saw in a compliance-based Ethereum split. So like an OFAC compliant, base layer compliant thing that just allows power to inject compliance lists and block lists into well, the base this layer. Would be, this would be a fantastic point to plug Aurora Cloud. Aurora is interesting because they've gone down a more business corporate solutions, which makes them not very sexy in the traditional crypto world. But when you start to think of those real-world applications, it's actually extremely useful. Through the Aurora Cloud offering, they have what they call an Aurora silo. So you can basically spin up your own EVM up near. There are many benefits, including having full compatibility with near and other EVMs, et cetera. But one of the interesting things that they're offering, especially because one of their focus areas is real-world assets, is full KYC compliance. So it can be mm-hmm. permissioned, you can have the website has some images of the dashboards or the users. You can collect some information from them. I think in some cases, that is the only way. It's a similar approach to Calimero. They mm-hmm. look at many business cases and they figure out, yeah, look, there may be a use for crypto in this business model, but they're never going to put all the information openly on the blockchain. Like some things just have to be elsewhere. Yeah, I think we'll start to get this fractionalization around specific app chains with different compliance ideas. I think we'll leave regional blockchains. I think all of these, I think winding back to the kind of the question around governance is you do want to mitigate against all of these things. The ultimately my view is that the credible neutral, credibly neutral, fully permissionless chain will ultimately be the settlement layer and everything else is a granular specialization 
or niche of the base layer infrastructure. So there'll be several, maybe a dozen tops, genuinely sovereign L1s at the end of it. I'm certainly expecting Nier to be one of them. And Ethereum, Bitcoin, Solana, maybe, and a few others. But any of them that essentially compromise their permissionlessness at the base layer will, you, they'll find a niche use case maybe somewhere. And, but I, I don't expect them to survive. Yeah, it brings back the Vitalik's definition of decentralization. It needs to be political, geographical, and I think technological. I mean, it's got three pillars. And it's yeah. interesting because you could see how some blockchains kind of game these. They're like, oh, we've got a thousand validators all on the same server run by three people. That's yes. not the same blood. Or, or maybe the other way around. A network may only have 40 validators, but there are people that hate each other around the world yes and yeah. different servers like one goes down the other one will still be there so these information sometimes it's hard to keep and i think that's where the value of community comes in if there's a vibrant community many independent ones and there are no yes. barriers of access for you just be now a validator that's resilience it so is yeah. yeah what i've said before is the drama is the prime indicator of decentralization Oh, we're doing great. Many. Near is killing yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I think it was being at Neocon that made me think that. I think that it's a good sign of decentralization. There's many different voices. Some of them really don't like each other. It means you've got a decentralized network. Not everyone's in cobalt with each other, and it's just one centralized thing. But yeah, bring us back to where you wanted to go next. We were talking, we're beginning to uncover factory DAO. We got a bit sidetracked there. One feature that you mentioned. <laughs> I'll give you the, uh, always I'll give you the background always. on that. Yeah. So I, I joined the space full time in four years ago now and started life as a prediction market. I tried to get a DAO idea off the ground at that time. And simply no one cared about DAOs in 2020. The people still had the sort of PTSD from the DAO, basically the, no one wanted to touch them. There was a few Another interesting out there, phenomena. DAO it took stack, a while. A very underground project. Like... But largely, yeah, people just didn't think that they would come back. So we started life as a prediction market. And in there, we were experimenting with on-chain reputation. And we actually started building DAO tools around ourselves that we needed. Largely to govern our token economy. And yeah, we, and we just set down this track on building modular DAO tools. And we realized that in order to finish this job off, we need to create, actually own this DAO framework. And there's an end game we're chasing, which is a DAO that governs a modular DAO framework with trustless execution at the base layer. So DAOs are a multifaceted system. They're going to need to evolve with the market, with the needs of users. And we just kept thinking there's all this down tooling craze for a while, but there needs to be some interoperable stack where all these tools can work with one another. Factory DAO is going to be this execution layer governed by a DAO that sort of governs which tools are the canonical ones and they'll all interoperate with, and our idea is to not just create the tools, but create the support and organization that people will need to build effective DAOs. When you want to launch a DAO in a few years, which I have a feeling a lot of people will want to, maybe sooner, you're going to go to the place where 
the tools you can take off the shelf. You don't need to be a smart contract engineer in order to do it. But you also get a group of people who know what they're talking about, operating and dog fooding DAOs themselves, saying, helping you design the thing, helping you run the thing, and backed by an open source code base that evolves with the needs of everyone that uses it. So that's what so we're trying what, to make. What kind of tools are we looking at and what level of customization would people want to consider or what sort of things have you seen so far that people are interested in? The kind of bulk of what we got to first was token issuance. Again, trying to get into this issue of fixing the rug pull problem. Like the, the problem with meme coins is not the memes, it's the rug pulls. It's the fact that the team dumps all the tokens into the market or yanks the liquidity or it's a fair launch where actually 90% of the tokens are all bought by the early insiders. So we built a few of those tools to just get tokens into the market and build a strong token economy. So we built a app called Bank, which locks in token emission schedules cryptographically. It's all viewable through a dashboard. So you can see exactly what the inflation schedules are, which accounts are holding them. You can check that all the tokens are vested. It also acts as a kind of distribution mechanism for tokens for airdrops, vested airdrops, DAO payroll, that kind of thing. And then you've got a token, anyone can mint an ERC-20. And with this bank, anyone can set all the token economy up, but you still need to create a market. So we created an app called Launch, which auctions a block of these tokens and then injects the liquidity into an AMM. Price discovery on the listing, bootstraps the M, so you've got a market, initial buyers, vested tokens. And then we have a system called yield, which then allows you to use liquidity mining to increase the debt on that market. So you can pay people to come and be liquidity providers and stake your tokens in them. And, and that's our kind of fungible token ecosystem stuff. That's um, pretty good. Yeah. I think it's, if you use that stack, that those three applications, you can List, launch a token without a centralized exchange, without any, in a completely decentralized manner. And everyone can have full confidence. There isn't someone that can rug it and just run off with the, or dump the tokens into the market. And it and would apply to any project, not just a meme coin. Like it's. Yeah, but it's, so it's handy for meme coins because there's zero trust in those things. You shouldn't ch ju trust a, the kind of anonymous cartoon character that's running that thing, but you won't need to, if you can check a, a dashboard and, and see exactly what the token is going to behave like over, over the future. But yeah, the, and, and the kind of the follow on from that is I think tokens are going to be, they'll have base layer of memes, but utility tokens will be what captures the value in a token economy, but the governance will be done by NFTs and humans are non-fungible. So the governance should be as well, shouldn't be entirely plutocrat and governance should be weighted. To people who actually participate in the system, know what they're talking about, can actually add value to the project. And the path to that is weighting people's governance power based on a non-fungible identity. So we've built a system for issuing those and making sure they don't get all bought out of the contract by just like people with enough money to do. So that's our issue. It is interesting stat. because at the moment we're getting to review NDC V2. The B1 model, one person, one vote problem, which is, sorry, fraudulent slip. V1 had a one person, one vote framework that had many problems. Yep. 
Some of them were more obvious than others to some people, including you could just onboard an unlimited amount of people to vote as long as you were a human, you could participate. But the second yep. one was that even if you were all indeed individual within the ecosystem, you, know, you give people the benefit of the doubt, let's assume no one's gaming it on a raw members basis. The yep. challenge that you have is every vote in a, in a real pragmatic sense, doesn't have the same value because I may not have any idea what the subject matter that we're voting on is, but somebody else may have a lifetime yes. of experience. How can those two votes offset each other? So the new revision yes. process is looking at how do we verify that people are humans on chain, but also how can we ensure that the key stakeholders, how do we ensure alignment? amongst the stakeholders mm -hmm. so that the network as a whole can grow. Even though it is decentralized and you can do whatever you want in it, we have a big pile of money that can be put toward, towards that growth. So I guess that's that's a challenge. At the moment, it is leaning towards stake-weighted voting, which has challenged because, as you say, it comes both. I'm curious, how do you issue those NFTs? How advanced are you guys in creating those mechanisms to assess people's participation? Is it frequency of voting? Is it quality of input? Do people rank each other? Because these are all the nitty gritty questions that yes. it's just harder to, to pin. Yeah, this is the good stuff. And it's what I've been thinking about for quite some time. I think that what I'm chasing is an idea I call informed consensus. So that issue of instead of plutocratic consensus, informed consensus is the weight is the voting power is weighted towards your knowledge in a particular domain. So your, how informed you are about that piece. So if you're voting on proposals related to education, then people with a background in education or with a proven history within the system. And ideally we get to this where you don't need to put your credentials in. You can just prove it on chain. will have a higher weight towards those things. One of the paths to this is what I think is quadratic voting. So identities can have a budget of voting power that is nuanced through some kind of reputation dynamic. So you, with an individual can have higher weighted voting power in a particular domain. So you can imagine a, a DAO that's making a d decision about smart contracts and your dev hub or equivalent structure has a much higher weighted vote on that as opposed to the marketing DAO, which has a higher weighting vote on the marketing stuff. This is a kind of meta governance problem. And what you need is a voting system that allows you to nuance voting power individually based on a kind of proven history of participation in that domain. How you do that is another layer of the problem. You've got to, you get into these, what I call the appraisal problem in DAOs, where you don't want an, in, it's not like a job interview where you've got a panel of three people who decide if this person's capable in that area, because that's quite centralized. What you need is a system that aggregates reputation in these domains over time. So trust is earned. This is a long-term game where people aggregate and build trust in particular domains in that area. As you were talking, my, my neural circuitry was firing. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. <laughs> I, I, I got a message from the universe. So at first I thought I was tripping. Because I got a flag mm -hmm. that, oh, the, the English exam that you have to sit, uh, it, it's stupid, but I had to sit the same mm -hmm. English exam when I got my first visa to come to Australia. Yeah. But yeah, it's the TOEFL or the IELTS 
Those exams yeah. are usually split in three categories, and one of them is reading comprehension. And the mm -hmm. reason why I think I thought of that is because I was thinking of requiring people to do some reading before voting a proposal. Let's say that four different yeah. people present a proposal, and there may be supporting documentation, so maybe technical, whatever. If you've done that reading, you may have an informed vote. But then the problem is, and we'll find this out really quickly, reading comprehension is not the same across people, whether they mm -hmm. just lower IQ or whether it's just subject matter expertise. So in my mind, I was like rapidly trying to patch together a system where let's say that you can ZK proof multiple reading comprehensions. So you basically have a rating. <laughs> And then you require people to read stuff before voting, and that gives you some sort of reputation. And every time that I thought it through, like a new tab kept opening, I was like, how could we really tell that somebody read the mm -hmm. suggested or recommended reading before voting? I think you could crowdsource it. Google Maps does this when they recommend walking distance. I guess they've got a shit yes. people walking. They capture a lot of information of when you open the map and put address and you say you're walking slowly, it takes it to get there. So we could have in a non-voting context, a system where we ask a hundred people, hey, read this. Then we do a comprehension test to ascertain that they read it and then get the average reading time. And then when we put someone to vote, same length text or whatever, there can be some metrics there that you've basically tried to increase the trust or, or try to increase yes. the odds of getting towards the desired outcome. Yes. So I, I, for a long time, yeah, I've been, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time and I am the, the kind of, so we've, we're going to have a sub DAO in Factory DAO called Knowledge DAO, which will do aspects of this stuff, which is to build a kind of knowledge graph that people contribute. Absolutely. It comes down, it's a very difficult problem. I used to work in assessment theory for a while and every game will be gamed. So you're right to be thinking, I'm going to give you this test and it, it will come down to assessments and by, by some kind of on-chain assessment, some kind that can start off very easy. Now with AI, we can have dynamic multiple choice assessments. I think all school level exams will end up as dynamic assessments tuned directly to that, that student. So the kind of one exam paper for everyone is going to be a thing of the past in the near future. And yeah, what you'll be able, it, it will come down to assessments. I think what's probably better, it, it's hard enough getting people to vote in DAOs anyway. So as soon as they have to come and sit exams, you've got no chance. You're going to have such a vanishingly small amount of people who will actually do it, unless the incentives are really high. So the other things we can do in DAOs is have a nice drip of incentives that increases the deeper down funnel that you go. So you will be able to make people to do assessments, but they have to be very lightweight to start. And you can also back when performance you, tests. This is a time in the day when my brain melts and I have <laughs> to go out for a walk or take a nap or just lie in the bathtub. Because when you add the AI layer, you realize that almost every problem that we've been working on and every solution that we think would be a great solution and it's making progress towards solving that problem, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant, but it is effective significantly. What you said makes perfect sense. My very basic approach as to whether people have read and whether they understand the text, you could a hundred percent have a, an A. It, it's almost like instead of direct democracy, we're going to have representative democracy, but the mm -hmm. thing representing you is your AI agent. Your yes. AI agent is not going to tell you that you're illiterate, 
but it will understand your preferences, how much information mm-hmm. you've consumed, your relationship to the problem. I, the team has dissolved-ish, we're no longer working on it actively, but one of the things that I proposed to work on, and I was on the team that did the, the GSX Intel presentation at Nearcon. Oh, nice. The yeah. biggest project. Good. Yeah. Yeah, they got me to, to pitch the idea because they're all very deeply technical and I was just trying to find the <laughs> pragmatic angle for it. But the thing that I was, because we're trying to like compartmentalize stages of development and like make a viable product, what can we do to get results now while seeking funding? And one thing that I would really like to see is an AI agent, think of a chat GPT that you interact with, but it is, as I said, that intermediary layer between the elected members of Congress and their roles with NDC. So instead of you having to go to mm-hmm. 50,000 Telegram chats and trying to know what the fuck is going on and then vote and proposal, yep. YOLO, you only get to put one link there, et cetera. Your AI agent could yep. basically tell you like, hey, this is your role. This is your priority right now. Read this, interact with that. And to me, the most important thing would be not just to make it easier for people to know what's going on because you've got that one layer omnipresent 24 seven that you can engage with. You can speak to it in your own language. It, it removes a lot of the friction that we have now. But to me, the main thing is we have to document people's reasoning as they vote. Right yeah. now, yeah, we that, are on yeah. our way to deciding up to a million dollars per month. I have zero guarantee that a person voting yes, no, or abstain has any fucking idea what the voting was. And mm-hmm. I sit in the Transparency Commission. It will be my role to assess the complaints of somebody saying, hey, this person is voting. They didn't do research or they had a conflict of interest or whatever. They made a mistake. Like, how can we assess that? Like, I keep telling people like, hey, keep notes. Abstain if you have no idea what you're doing. Like, these are basic human practices, but it's very easy to fall short. Yeah. AI is going to 100% change the game. And then makes yeah. me wonder, and I'll pose a question to you because we're building this together. How much do we build now as, a, as an MVP or, or like as a stepping stone? Or how much do we just jump ahead and try to go for the most advanced, most powerful solution? It's almost like skipping a few developmental stages. Yes. There's one thing that's a kind of common problem in DAOs, I think, and actually stalled quite a bit of progress is people understand that these, gonna, these systems are going to be flawed because they're very emergent, very nascent. And so we hit this kind of stasis point where we don't really move at all. The best way to do it is a kind of very iterative approach. So I certainly wouldn't stop what you're doing and try and build some end game solution. Move and iterate. The, the kind of like looking at like Buddha loops as a kind of approach where you take this cyclical approach to moving, monitoring, moving forward. So you don't get stuck waiting for a solution that is probably won't work anyway, because there's always some vector you haven't thought of for why it'll go wrong. But justifications are important. So we, we've, the capstone of our factory DAO toolkit is called Influence, and it's a kind of decentralized decision-making system. And this is what we're in this. It's got this quadratic voting bit with reputation plugins. And in, in every vote, we have a justification for the vote. Which of these are the best proposals they, you end up quadratic voting on them, sorting them, and then you justify in natural language why. So with justifications of votes, you get to see the thought processes of that person's vote. So as far as possible, you want to stay out of snitch network type 
stuff. I know it ended in whistleblowers on, on the setup of the NDC and you'd want to avoid that as much as possible. Things get very dystopian and panopticon-like in DAOs if you're not careful when everyone's, that's where their toxicity and, and animosity breeds because people are snitching on each other and you want to move away from that as much as possible and, well, and just keep moving on eggshells. Yeah. And it's just not much fun. Like this should be fun. We're innovating at the edge of the frontier of the new governance design of this is the new organization. This is the edge of technology. We should be enjoying ourselves. We should be having a lot of fun and we should be making a difference. And I think as the kind of vibes can go really nasty, I've, it's happened in almost every DAO I've seen evolve over the last few years. So this is nothing exactly out, out of I the mean, norm. The thought process is like the most important really, because it goes to that complex adaptive yeah. system. Like for instance, I was a marketing DAO counselor for a long time and all my decisions are still on the governance forum. It'd be interesting if you check them out because I put in a lot of work in, hey, mm -hmm. yes or no. And then I would say a few notes and I would lay out what were the factors that I considered in detail. The team has experience elsewhere, proxy validation, mm -hmm. the commitment to the near ecosystem. This idea tackles these need that we have. We're willing to take the risk. The price point may be high, low, whatever. I try to be very nuanced because... I wanted the team to know when they come for the next proposal on what lines I'm going to be thinking. Most likely, if I see the exact same proposal two times in a row, the second time, I'm not going to approve it. Like the circumstances have changed mm -hmm. and the teams and the people should ideally move towards something and things are slightly different or the reasoning is slightly different. But yeah, the capturing that is hard. If you talk to someone like Kendall from Proximity, he thinks that the DAOs as we have them now are bullshit because they're not autonomous. They are people. To him, a DAO is going to be AI-driven. We provide yes. all the inputs, but the autonomy to make a decision, taking into account all the information and reaching the most optimal solution, like DAOs to him have to be AI-driven by definition. And to be able to get there, we need to also have as much information as possible and chain because we need to validate. Where is it coming from? Who is it giving? And yes. yeah, it's... I think that's the end game. I, so there's the auto, people confuse autonomy with autonomous at times in DAOs. So like autonomous, like decentralized autonomous organizations would be fully non-human. They'd be completely bots, right? And I actually think that's probably the tip of the spear of where DAOs go in the end. It's like they'll lens into a particular use case, do it incredibly well and be fully automated and humans can just check out at that point and go on holiday. I think we're quite a way off that, but th th that's where we're heading. I, I do, th I think this is the, the humans move right out to the edges, beyond the edges. They just basically leave. You have a fully autonomous system that manages treasury and does all the execution. I think that's probably where we're going. For particular use cases, I think there's always going to be DAOs that become completely decentralized organizations on chain and are actually much more future of work orientated. There's a spectrum like a, across all of these things, it's a genuine new kind of digital organization that can have many different forms. I think the other point that you about your feedback on the forum, there's one massive utility of DAOs that will come to the fore over the coming years, which is you have that decision-making provenance. So you can, I've worked in large institutions and then why are we doing this? This is silly. And no one knows, right? No one has it. It's just the way we do it. 
It's a really common phenomenon. I've seen it in several institutions. It's how we do it because it's just the way it's been done. Everyone who made that decision is gone. Whereas in Downs, we'll be able to look back 10 years and understand exactly why that decision was made at that time and match it up to the current context. And AI is going to help with all of that stack as well. That is one thing that lawyers often argue in court. When new legislation is passed, at least in the common law, we're both happy to be under our new king. Long live the queen. I'm not going to let that one go for a while. There is like a preamble. The purpose of the legislation is laid out at the beginning. So even though it may be very long with infinite number of forces and exceptions, et cetera, they lay out what is the purpose of this existing and sometimes like reasoning if there is something anywhere else in the legislation that you're just not entirely sure how to interpret, or there may be a challenge, you would often go back and read, what are we trying to achieve here? For instance, if mm -hmm. we pass a legislation to increase the tax on something, to minimize a specific behavior, and there is a question as to the tax apply to, say, a new business model. The question would be, is that business model encouraging, discouraging, or neutral to the behavior we want to encourage? Do not apply the tax to something that it was never meant to apply because it's not making any difference. And by the way, this is dating me. But when I arrived in Australia, they had just increased uh, the taxes on pre-mixed drinks, like Spirinoff Ice and those kind of mm -hmm. mixed drinks. And I think after a two-year trial, the treasury, whatever tax office said, you know what, we realize that it makes absolutely no difference to alcohol consumption. I don't know if they scrapped it because to be honest, the prices never came back down, but at least they were very honest that the reason why the tax was put up did not make any difference at all. You could keep the tax, yes, but it's a they very rarely put them mechanism. down like, once they're yeah, in. Let, let's not um, pretend like, like yes. the purpose is being met. And if you ever have to make a decision, take into account the tax is not making it. Don't put more taxes on more shit because we know it doesn't make a difference. At this for that reason. Yes. And this is why I think DAOs will do, solve problems that all other organizations don't. If you remember, like, but you asked me why I think they're so important is because you can see through the evidence of all governance in the real world that there's just daft decisions that are made a long time ago that are legacy decisions that aren't revisited. And actually, it's the moving forward at a pace because of the transparency of the decision-making and all the many minds that are coming into the game who see this and question it. And there's just a, a constant rolling questioning consensus and a, and a kind of aggressive moving forward that you just don't get in conventional organizations. The challenge we have now is that the internet is both an incredible force and for good or bad. For instance, a TikTok influencer could surface the reasoning behind some decisions. And there's been some good examples recently around accounts surfacing uh, politicians' uh, portfolios and their trading patterns. Mm -hmm. Mysterious yep. how good they are. Very curious. The problem would be that a 60-second TikTok may not capture all context. So people would have to mm -hmm. go and get the, the full picture. But the, this really comes back to the self-healing, self-correcting mechanisms. And on a Twitter space a couple of weeks ago, somebody was asking like, hey, inactive members to Congress, are you going to remove them? And I was like, look, we have the power to remove people if some criteria is met. But mm -hmm. removing an elected Congress member, it's an extremely high threshold. And what I explained to people was, if you don't like inactive members to Congress, first, don't fucking elect them. This is a lesson for the next election. 
This is not a problem for me yes. to solve. You've got Next relatively short election cycles, right? Yeah, six months. Next election campaign, you demand of your candidates, are you going to be active? And, and let's have thresholds there. The second yes. one is, and I said it openly, maybe being inactive, it's a feature. It's not a bug. If you've got a dysfunctional parliament and half the people don't have the ability to participate, maybe that's for us yes. to reflect on. What can we do to make them become active? I yes. can't just go replacing everyone that may be opposing. They have a right to not do yeah. anything from my point of view, as long as there's some caveat to it. it the, yeah. The, I guess we're trying and to And they might surface it. when there's a decision they care about. I guess what I'm trying to say is in that self-healing, self-correcting mechanism, there are people that I see that all I tell them is just document your reasoning. Because guess what? Mm -hmm. Even if the reasoning is shit, we just need to know for the next instance we get to decide who leads us. And different people may choose differently. That's fine. But we just need to have the information available. Yes. Especially how people's thinking evolve over time, being able to capture writing the lessons that we learn. There's just so much richness in that information that it's the only way for these young ecosystems to evolve. Now, Nick, I'm mindful of time and there's a couple of things that I want to touch on. Let you comment on this and then we'll quickly move on to ghost chains. Ghost chains, cool. Yeah, just on that point, I think we should sit down and look at Influence App at some point. I think it's answering some of those issues. I think you're right on the money about collecting justifications of votes. And I think it's, it's you want to try and stay out of the forum as much as possible and just get everything done with votes. And I think it's just have that moving forward attitude. I think you want the transparency. Watch out for remove. If you keep removing people, you just end up with concentrated power. Every system needs to have inactive people are inactive just because they don't see the value in it yet. Or they've checked out and they're busy on other stuff. They might reactivate at some point. If anything, you want more and more people. The, the dynamic should be like, let's bring bigger numbers in. That actually generally should make things better as long as your consensus mechanisms are good enough. But yeah, let's talk about ghost chains. Yeah, we'll definitely be revisiting this, especially because we'll be building some of this together. We've already established that. But in some of your writing, you mentioned ghost chains. And mm -hmm. the quick preamble is... I'm very mindful, and this may touch on meme coins, of the first interactions that people have with crypto, because inevitably yep. it marks them. And you mentioned that some past interactions with ghost chains have made it much harder for you to take seriously mm. or to take the time to look into something to determine whether you should take it seriously. So yep. I'd, I'd love to learn more about what were those experiences like, because yep. eventually you reach near and yeah, it did reignite that curiosity. So I'm wondering, what was some of that baggage? It's one of the things you get a bit jaded in crypto over time. And it's very, it's hard to stay completely curious about new blockchains because there's so many of them now. There's, I don't know how many new L2s there are this year, for example, just in Ethereum. It's north of 50. And yeah, at some point you just, you can't, you don't even, you don't even look at the website. It, it just, it all becomes noise. And the kind of Ethereum killers that arose out of the last bull run, I just started to get a bit jaded with them. One, I, I lost nearly a year on, I, I spent a year working on a startup on EOS and that was just a total waste of time. You can build a product on a blockchain and if the blockchain is dead, 
then you're battling two levels of user adoption. So if you go and build something on the iOS store, your user universe is everyone who's got an iPhone. And same with Android or whatever. If you've got a browser-based app, it's anyone with an internet connection. But with blockchains, you've got a hard chasm on adoption to the network. And if yeah, the blockchain I mean, itself... A, that's a cold start problem, right? Like, where do you yeah. get users when you start something new? Name and shame, what would be some of those early wave of the Ethereum killers and EOS, any others that EOS, stand Tezos, out? I thought at least... Tezos was another one that I wasted a bit of time on. So yeah, that that was, again, good tech, actually. You know, is, there's a few that are there that are good tech that are basically ghost chains, uh, just because they have, didn't manage to get the ecosystem growth. The the network effects never arose. Um, I yeah, really liked didn't? it, though. It was a little bit active <laughs> in the community for, for a while. So what worries me is that it wasn't just challenges of the technological level. Maybe they were newer than Ethereum, but we're still lacking in some ways. And while we fast forward yep. to near, you could may well make the argument that we've advanced to the tech stack to actually enable new use cases. What worries me is that they may have indeed have had enough of the technology to get something going. They just failed at the social layers. And it mm -hmm. worries me because when we look at near, we probably do have the technical parts sorted out, but there are pending challenges. Like we shouldn't take things for granted. Yes. Absolutely. I think the I think it's got near's got vast potential and it strikes me as different to it's got more of a, a new community and ecosystem than Tezos ever had. Is it all if you look at the exponential growth equations, they all start with this kind of A naught in it. What's your starting base? Like all growth leads from the initial base of users. And Near has a strong base, which is there. But it's then dependent on the growth rate. Those people in the base need to bring in more people. You need that expansion of the network effects. You need brand new people coming in. This is one of the reasons why I think DAOs are so important. Ultimately, I think I said a while ago, I think the prime metric for the few, the prime KPI, if you like, predictive KPI of a, blo of, of, of a blockchain will be how many DAOs do they have. Because a DAO has a group of people in it. Some might have 20, some might have 100, some might have 1,000. But each of those people are talking about that blockchain. It's a high coherent, small world in network effect terms, network theory terms. But, there's an, but they all talk about the blockchain. So if you imagine Nier had 1,000 DAOs on it, all of those people in those DAOs are going to talk about Nier to their friends. And that's what drives the network effects. This is music to my ears because I am in the process. I love that in every subsequent podcast, I release a little bit more alpha. I love it because it forces me to actually deliver on it. Uh, it's people that are watching now. But uh, in the previous podcasts, I mentioned the House of Shards. Now the name has evolved to Shard 69. Controversial. Oh, nice. I think you need some uh, heavy heat Good branding. Name. And there's some lore to it. Right now we have four shards. We can expand technically infinitely. So this is almost like an elite program where we are on a mission to fill 69 shards, real apps, real users, let's fucking go. Mm -hmm. And the intention is, look, let's turn competition and toxicity into something positive. Instead of going at each other's throat and trying to prove each other wrong or whatever with words, talk is cheap. Let's create a system where people can group together, find a tribe. You don't like it here, then fuck mm -hmm. off and start something else. We're going to compete on innovation. Mm -hmm. Strong KPIs. Yeah. 
ideation, MVPs, how many hackathons you participate, how many MVPs go on to a real product. If you raise external capitals, we can define some KPIs and really empower people to go only. I want a million. Mm -hmm. At the end of the year, we split it across all these tribes. And yeah, I agree with you. We need those groups, people that are really pushing the edges. That's one of the challenges of centralization and centralization. If it's too centralized, people are waiting to be told what to do. If it's too decentralized, maybe no not anyone is doing much. Yeah, you need to be pushing in the same direction. That's why yeah. I welcome Ilya's return foundation, even though it's been bumpy because I feel like we're finally holding in on that builder blockchain. Like we're trying to mm-hmm. really own that identity and say, hey, like right now we're building. We will have a billion users, yes. but right now we want builders. And right now we want people that can really do something with that technology. So yeah. I guess that each one of these collectives will be a DAO. Yes. And that's, yeah, I think having those collectives as DAOs will bring, make them more anti-fragile, right? It, it's, it means you'll get rugged less, at least by who, wherever that money goes, right? And by the way. Well, yeah, I think the you, builder thing, I think, oh, sorry, mate, go on. I know, I was just going to say that. You mentioned before that an interesting feature of the DAO was that if people left, they could take their share of the treasury with them. Yes. Moloch DAOs also had that. It was called rage tweeting. And I found it hilarious. That's right, yeah. And I think it's a mechanism that we should revise to know how it may apply in different contexts. In the neural circuitry party that it's my head, I was thinking, what if for every member that resigns or is removed, the budget shrinks. What is a rage quick equivalent of a mm-hmm. level governance? Like, how do you remove your consent? Yes. Yeah. I think that, so rage quitting mechanics or exit mechanics are, are one of the things that are often neglected in DAOs. It's like offboarding, getting people out. This comes back to the kind of big V value thing. It's like, we're building esoteric stuff here that my and I think the the thing with the builder mindset is great. We do need the builders because we need the apps. So you need the products, but you can get too infrastructural where you, those products aren't providing any value to any people in the real world. So it's just provide, as long as you're not building for other devs exclusively, because you can keep but, building but for devs. But that's decentralization, because we have to be decentralized, but coordinated. Because for instance, yes. I talked to... One of the product people at Pagoda at NeoCon, I was sitting in block zero, hacking away the hackathon and looking at some of the presentations. And I told her, this is fucking insane. Like the presentations here are off the charts. Like I am seeing technology that they did not know that it existed. And if you guys are able to deliver, this is going to change the world. But then I asked her, how many people are using all the other great shit like Fastball that was released many months before? Mm-hmm. They don't know. They're not tracking. And to be honest, not that many. The ecosystem, I can tell you this adoption is not that high. So how can you simultaneously succeed and fail? You succeeded at your job, like the delivery of the very yeah. hard technical implementation. Is the adoption failure on you or on someone else? And that's why I keep saying, look, we need to be more aligned, more communication, etc., because it's a team effort and uh, yeah, I, I see my role in communicating and, and trying to organize these decentralized savages, but... Yes, I think that's it. I think the you can have all the tools. That there's a kind of, if you build it, they will come. It doesn't really work in technology. Or it can do, but it can take many years, right? And 
actually it's about the practice of using the, those technologies. It's about context. It's about human use. It's the social to the technical. These are socio-technical systems. So yeah, it's learning from the users and seeing what the users need and, and want and, and make much more of a human-centric design alongside the, the sort of developer base is what's needed, I think. But yeah, I think the more humanity. Amazing presentations around human-centric design. And once again, like the challenge is how do we get that information to trickle down? Fast Amazing is great, conference. Right? Fast is a good example. It's it, it really, and it's very much online with the chain abstraction idea, onboard people, make it super slick, get rid of the blockchain out of the equation. And, but it's still, what are they authorizing into? It's like you're moving through a portal and it's, I think you're moving people into a space. What do you do with them when you've got there? And like, how can you help people cross the chasm? And this is something all blockchains are wrestling with at the moment. And this is largely why we're just stuck with meme coins, right? And why we've just got BGEN's gambling. So the, yeah. I don't know if you knew, but the history of Nier and DAOs, we had a very strong creative style. This is like 2020. And what I explain to people is why was the creative style? We had two, they merged, whatever. Why was it so strong? And I explained to me, and context is important, has priorities and funding changes. Because there was nothing else to do on chain. We needed a community. Mm. The tech stack was two years away from being like fully fledged. The creatives community was great because they didn't demand much from the technology. And they were lively. Like they brought in their energy and their shit. And with the basic stuff that we could offer them, they were. And I feel like we're going to be mindful of that because it's an example of Let's try to identify what is holding us back. For a very long time, the technology was holding us back. The reason why user experience is so shit in crypto is because you are wasting your time creating a user journey and it's all beautiful and stuff. When you were forced to insert 17, 17 approvals, 30 bucks worth of gas, you gotta get there were just too many ifs and buts. But now that we're getting to a point where the technology is pretty good, you can build something decent. Then the question is, who's got the product mindset? Because fuck me, yes. the engineers are terrible. I've seen products that are not a product. It's just with one bot. And I was like, I don't even know what this is called. What am I meant to be doing? Like, it's really lacking. So now I feel like we can finally get in the product people, the designers, and start asking those questions that are very normal in the product space, but are very rare in the crypto space. Why are the users? Yeah, this, problem this is problem are we solving? Unfortunately, I'm going to have to I'll just realize the time, but... It's, I've got another meeting that I need to run to and I'm late for it, but it's been wonderful chatting for you, mate, T. It's been great. Sir, uh, let's do we'll it again. We'll have to have you back. I also lost track of time, so I apologize. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on. These things happen. I just hope yes. that you keep building on here, that we keep developing DAOs together and we're so grateful to have you in the ecosystem. Wonderful, mate. I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do on near together. See you later. Cheers. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, let's be honest, you are amazing! And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. 
Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.